today and every day, we turn our eyes towards Jesus so that the things of this earth, even where there is evil, where there is strife, there is bitterness, there is sin, we turn our attention to Christ and to Christ alone, that that around us which distracts us may grow dim and that we may be focused, centered, and refreshed by God in his presence. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, there is a familiar metaphor. And I had preached a month ago on the second part of this, of salt and light, focusing on light as a theme of our campaign. But today, as we put that behind us, as we look back over our week, today we talk about both metaphors, of both salt and of light. But before we go to God's word together, let's pray. God, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And by your Holy Spirit, may you open us up, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to your word, your written word which draws us to the living word, which is you, Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Salt and light. I'm curious. How much salt is enough? If we put a little bit of salt on, say, you know, green beans, something that we should eat and we should enjoy, if we put a little bit of salt on, it does almost nothing. It gets diluted out with everything else. Salt, though, can bring out the best flavors in anything, or it can cover up cooking errors, too. That's what I use it for. But how much salt is enough? Salt can make a bland meal delicious if you add just the right amount. Salt can make the insipid taste delightful. But how much salt is enough? And at what point do we reach that there's been too much salt? Salt can make a bland meal delicious, but too much salt... And we can ruin what we were making in the first place. Now, there's different ranges of how salty people like their food. 
But with the human experience, because we all have the same taste buds designed in the same way, we can agree that there is such a thing as not enough salt, where you just want a little bit more. But even if you like things really salty, you too can agree that there is such a thing as too much salt, where the meal that you set out to enjoy is ruined, because all you end up doing is sucking on salt. Jesus uses salt as a metaphor for the witness of the church. Not enough salt, you can't even tell the difference. There's no salt present. You're not even sure that there is any salt put on. This was always the argument between my mom and dad growing up. We would see mom put salt on the broccoli, but we were never really sure if it was there. We wanted more salt. But Jesus also reminds us that salt can lose its saltiness. It can overpower to the point where, ugh, there's too much. Too much and you've ruined it. And whatever it once was has lost its flavor. Salt is an interesting metaphor. And there's articles you can read about how in Jesus' time, the way that they had to store salt, there was risk of moisture actually making it lose its saltiness and things would settle and break apart because they didn't have the same kind of uh, clean and pure sodium chloride that we have today or, or Lowry's for anyone in the Midwest. But Jesus uses this metaphor which has multiple layers. Salt is a good thing. Too much can be a bad thing. And too little won't be noticed at all. Now, to understand Scripture, we use biblical theology, meaning we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We find other places where the same metaphors are used, other places that expound upon the same point. And as we think about salt being the witness of the church, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4 as well. And don't worry, I'm not cheating. I'm going to turn there with you. So if you flip from Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you should find yourself towards Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossian church, he uses this metaphor of salt again, and he uses it in terms of witness both within and outside of the church. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. The Apostle Paul is in prison at this point for his witness of the gospel, for the mystery of Christ. Continuing at verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Conversations that are full of grace and seasoned with salt being wise towards outsiders. And that the Apostle Paul prays for clarity in delivering his message, the mystery of Christ. Clarity. 
in knowing when you need more salt and when you've just got way too much. Jesus talks about salt as the witness of the church. And he also warns us that we can lose our saltiness. So I invite you this morning to wonder with me, how do we lose saltiness? We lose our saltiness when we stop using salt to season, to enrich, and instead we start using it maybe to put in open wounds when we win an argument or to go back on an old conversation and bring it up to throw it in someone's face like you could throw salt in someone's eyes during a fight. That's fighting dirty. Salt is once again interesting, though, because it's saline solution that we use for our eyes, for preservation, for healing. But also dry salt in one's eyes is painful. Salt has a healthy measure, and going to either side of that healthy measure can be either worthless or destructive. And when do we throw salt in people's eyes? When are we most tempted to just put a little bit of salt in an open wound? We do that when we're feeling defensive, when we're anxious, when we're upset, when we're at our nerves end, when we are just ready to let anybody have it. And in that moment, we who are the salt of the earth may pick up a handful of salt and throw it in someone's eyes. We might revisit an old conversation and drive a little bit of salt into a wound to make it sting a bit. We do not do this in God's love. We do it out of malice. A reminder that just because we are Christians, we are not exempt from temptation and from sin. Now, this has happened on both sides of the aisle, certainly during our election season. And we need no recap on what was said then. The only challenge that I would offer on that is to remember that there are malicious things that have been said and done in our country in the last several months. And to challenge ourselves to remember that that was on both sides. That we don't get to pretend that everyone has been gracious and patient. We don't get to pretend that both sides have always been mature and seasoned with salt. But let's bring it a bit closer to home, shall we? Because there is no easier recipe for division than arguing about something that's out there. Let's bring it closer to home, beyond party lines into our own families. By show of hands, how many of you are or ever have been married? Ooh, okay. How many, keep your hands up. How many of you have ever had a significant other? Or perhaps a brother or sister? Or how many of you have parents? Oh, there we go. Okay, now put your hands down. But if you looked around the room, most hands were up uh, when we got down from who's been married and, and who has had parents before. How many of you who have been married have ever disagreed with your spouse? Okay, I think 99% of the same hands went up, and the other 1% are lying. How many of you have ever seen your parents disagree? How many of you, when you were children, saw adults disagreeing with each other and you thought, goodness me, at seven years old, I'm more mature than them? That's, that's the smug, arrogant side, remember? That, that comes out. That over-saltiness is just waiting on the tip of my tongue. 
How do we disagree? With speech that is seasoned in salt. And how do we remember today that this is not pointed at one party or another, but that this is God's word for all of us, for all people, at all times and in all places? Salt and light is not just for Americans at election season or Americans in politics. This is the word of the Lord for the world, for all people, for the church to remember that we are salt and light and that our speech is seasoned in salt. Now think back close to home. How do we season our conversations with salt with those whom we love dearly? If I officiated your wedding or did your premarital counseling, then you already know what I'm going to say, and so you can just straight up hit the snooze button on this for now. Or maybe, maybe we all need to hear these words and these reminders from time to time. No matter how young or old we are, no matter how many life transitions we are experiencing, whether we're newlyweds or empty nesters, whether we're celebrating the baptism of our first child, or whether we're chasing down all four of them, or making calls to our children who live far away, or trying to keep in contact with our sons and daughters who are overseas, perhaps serving in our armed forces. First of all, we do so with empathy. Empathy requires us to have the ability to explain someone else's words with whom we disagree, the person who you rose your hand for, Empathy requires us to be able to explain someone's words in words that they would agree with. Not in a passive-aggressive way to undermine or undercut, but when you disagree with someone you love, can you explain their perspective in their words in a way that they say, yes, that is what I'm saying? That is empathy. Now, you don't have to abandon your position and you don't have to agree with theirs, but you do have to be able to explain it in their words. And I don't say this lightly. If you can't do that, you're an idiot. And here's why I say that, not just as an insult, but because the Greek word idios is where we get our English word idiot from. Do you know what idios comes from? It comes from one singularity. The classical writers like Homer use the word idios to describe someone who is a one-track mind, a singular person, someone who doesn't have the capacity to explain the perspective of someone they disagree with. They are an idios, a fool, one who only understands their own way and can't even put into words where someone else is. So in some ways, combining salt and light and some other classic Greek words, empathy simply requires us To not be an idiot. To be able to disagree with someone who you love very dearly. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your brothers, your sisters. To be able to explain to them in their words what they're thinking. If we can do that at home, we can do that elsewhere. But it can't start out there expecting other people to do things that we ourselves cannot accomplish. The next piece beyond empathy is that reminder from Ephesians chapter 4.26 to never let the sun go down on your anger, to reconcile with one another. And sometimes to reconcile requires a lot of salt, maybe more salt than we want, but it has to bring out some godly flavor in the conversation. 
When we become angry, we cannot let the sun go down on our anger. And we know that sometimes in close relationships, sometimes there's too much anxiety. We're too defensive. And we just can't do that on the day. And so we advise people in counseling. Sometimes you have to name it and leave it and say, you know what? We do need to talk about this. Tomorrow, let's set a time and place to have a conversation where we're both ready to come with empathy and to be seasoned with salt. Now, one of the other things that I always tell couples in premarital counseling is to fight fairly. Sometimes we get into the always and the nevers, and we don't want to fight fairly anymore. We want to say, you never put your dishes away. You always leave the trash for me to pick up. And it only takes one example to say, no, you're wrong. And then you're not arguing about what the original disagreement was about. You've gotten completely sidetracked. Fight fairly. Which reflects on how we use the past. That we don't get to bring up that which has been resolved and throw that salt in someone's eyes. We don't get to pull on an old hurt and draw some salt into the wound because that's not how we treat people that we love. We fight fairly. And our human nature gives us a desire to win arguments, not to fight fairly. That's a lot of our disagreements in our families. We want to win, not fight fairly. And that's actually why I appreciate the movie Deadpool just a little bit, but I can't endorse it because it's not a great movie. And that's an explanation for a different audience at a different time. But it does put on display that we don't like to fight fairly. We like to win. Fighting fairly doesn't mean you just get to pull on the worst examples and that you get to admit when you're wrong. Right now, we could think of, and we could share examples, the worst examples of times when we have been unfair in fighting with each other in our own households. At the national level, there's plenty of the worst examples to pull on as well. There's riots happening, violent ones, not the peaceful protests, not the, the rights, but there's violent riots, and we could say, don't do that. That's the worst. And there's also those who are spray-painting swastikas on buildings. We can always pull on the worst examples to make our point. But outside of those far spectrums of not enough salt and way too much salt, there is that median in the middle where the church needs to be salt and light to every conversation, to every grace. There's always the extremes. There's always the worst examples that we can point to. And sometimes we do that because we really do believe it's the right thing to point out. And it should be called out. Wrong needs to be called out. But sometimes we do it to win the argument. And we have to admit when we are wrong. Admitting when you're wrong is an invitation to humility, something we don't always do well with. It's hard to admit to our loved ones when we're wrong, when we haven't kept a promise, when we want to make excuses and why it was circumstantial, but we were just wrong. There's an invitation now for us to say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my guesses are wrong. Maybe what I thought about someone was wrong. That's an invitation of humility. And that is not easy for us. Eugene Peterson, in the message, translated this passage about salt with these words. He said, let me tell you why you are here. 
You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. That brings out the God flavors of this earth. And if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. The world doesn't need examples of saltless conversations. What the world does need and what the church needs is the exemplification of conversations that are seasoned with salt. Because maybe we are being watched more closely than we know for how we celebrate victories and for how we handle defeats. And that even within this congregation, both of those realities are felt. And the devil wins when the politics of this world create new enemies and suspicion within the church. And it is the easiest temptation that we succumb to is to let something from the outside divide from within. If you have new suspicion, new animosity, new anxiety, or new dislike or distrust of someone who you once called a friend, a loved one, check your heart. And just as we're told to not let the sun go down on our anger, we do need to reconcile and we need to listen. And on both sides, we need to remember that there's a possibility that we're wrong. I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to quote modern politicians in a sermon. And it's because there have been examples of leaders speaking words that have been seasoned with salt in this last week, even as the nation has been in uproar, even as the worst of both sides have come out. There has been seasoned words. First one was the first ones I heard after the election. A particular individual said, Hillary Clinton has worked very long and very hard over a long period of time, and we owe her a major debt of gratitude for her service to our country. This was said by President-elect Donald J. Trump. It was President Obama who said that often the debates are an intramural, intramural scrimmage. He didn't stutter, I did. Intramural scrimmage. And after it's done, we look around and remember we're all on the same team. This was also said by President Obama. Now, it's no secret that the president-elect and I have had some pretty significant differences. But remember, eight years ago, President Bush and I had some significant differences. But President Bush's team could not have been more professional or more gracious in making sure that we had a smooth transition so that we could hit the ground running. So I've instructed my team to follow the example of that President Bush's set eight years ago and work as hard as we can to make sure that this is a successful transition for the president-elect. These are words that are seasoned with salt. Nothing passive-aggressive, and we can easily discredit the person that we like the least. But can we hear them and appreciate words that are seasoned with salt? One other quote. Our constitutional democracy enshrines the peaceful transfer of power. And we don't just respect that, we cherish it. It also enshrines other things, the rule of law, the principle that we are all equal in rights and dignity, freedom of worship and expression. And so we respect and cherish these values too, and we must, de- and we must defend them. Donald Trump is going to be our president, and we owe him an open mind and the chance to lead. This was said in Hillary Clinton's succession speech. 
Concession. I always mix those up. I know what a concession stand is. That's where you buy snacks. But concession and succession, I mix those up. Maybe they're synonyms. I don't really remember. There are words that are seasoned with salt. That takes humility. It takes courage. And it takes a lot of wisdom to know what the right amount of salt is. You know the modern parable about knowledge, wisdom, and philosophy? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad. And philosophy is wondering if ketchup is a smoothie. (laughs) I jest, but when we collect all of the knowledge and wisdom and even philosophical positions within our church, we come together to have conversations that are filled with grace and seasoned with salt. Because in so doing, we make the most of every opportunity and are wise in how we deal with outsiders. These words are not just for today. These are the words of Jesus for all times, at all places, for all people. But maybe they have a different weight and a different challenge to all of us today. To every single one of us. Salt and light. Light is an interesting thing because it's the universal constant. When you drive 60 miles an hour in your car, you're only going 60 miles an hour in relation to the earth, which in fact is spinning at a really fast rate as well. Light is the only thing that is always going the same speed, no matter what. It is constant. And what we need more than anything else, instead of the comparison of who's gone the fastest and who's gone the furthest and who will go the fastest and the furthest, we need to fix our eyes on the universal constant which is the light and love of Jesus Christ that is unchanging. And it takes different forms, just as in physics, light can operate as both a particle and a wave, which if you don't think is that interesting, you should, because it's mind-blowing. Nothing should ever work that way. But light can be a particle or a wave. It's versatile, and it's hard to understand. And it is a mystery, and it is like the mystery that the Apostle Paul named in Colossians 4, in talking about the mystery of Christ, the peace and light of Christ's constant love calls us as a church to be salt and light and to be seasoned with salt in our conversations that are filled with grace and to reconcile with one another because as we celebrated in baptism, we love because Christ first loved us. And therefore, since Christ has reconciled us, all of us as sinners, to him, we reconcile with one another in response, with salt, with light, and with the peace and light of God's constant love. Amen. Let's pray. God, give us the wisdom to know how much salt is enough. Lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit to know when, as the light of the world, we need to be a particle and when we need to be a wave. Strengthen the witness of your church at all times and in all places through your word and through your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. At this time, our deacons will come forward and collect our morning's tithes and offerings.
And we invite you to sign and pass the fellowship pads at the end of your row so that we can come to know one another. Deacons, please come.